I'm Samantha Engel. And I'm Aaron Gullius, and this is Great Lakes Lore. Hello, Sam. How are you? I am hot. (laughs) And are you feeling okay? Are you feverish? The temperature is just too much right now. And humidity <laughs> and everything. I mean, first of all, I admire the confidence. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, it is. I, I think it, it, uh, we just got in from watering, and I think it's 92 or something like that. Yeah. And it is miserable. It really is. <laughs> it is. I'm so glad that I'm in my my subterranean lair uh, where I record because... It's like being in a cheese cave. You know, here. when I, growing up, I I never lived with air conditioning until I had an apartment of my own in graduate school because my parents never had air conditioning. And um, yeah, that's, that's what the basement's for, <laughs> for hanging out and um, playing ping pong and Super Nintendo and things like that when... Your parents don't have air conditioning. We, we, we did not have a livable basement. Um, it was good enough for my dad's wood shop and the washing machine. That, that's mm. about what it was good for. We had a window air conditioner mm-hmm. on the main floor. And my parents had one in their bedroom. Mm-hmm. But when it was hot, we would all get blankets and pillows and sleep, all sleep in the living Or my sister and I would sleep in the living room. And uh-huh. if my parents were being cheap, they wouldn't turn their air conditioner on. They would come down and sleep <sighs> downstairs too. So <laughs> yes, I remember living room camping out because we've got this 20-year-old air conditioner that's trying yeah. to keep the house the house cool. Yeah. So. No, we I, I slept in the basement a few times as a kid. I mean, it was like partially finished and there were two halves to our basement. One was like old Michigan basement. The other one was part of an adi- long story that no one cares to listen to. But um, I think it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Michigan basement life. Architecture. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think it's. Yeah. So today we're we're going to be getting into a new topic. We have we have not covered this topic before and that topic is a UFO sighting. Yeah. We had mystery airships, but that was very sort of historically based and not terribly outer spacey potentially this is this is more modern ufo modern the golden age of <laughs> flying saucer sightings and it is the 1966 sightings in southeast michigan uh, particularly dexter and hillsdale and if you've ever heard the phrase swamp gas associated with ufos this is that story so sam you're not uh, you're not necessarily what you would consider. You would not consider yourself a a UFO person. I am. I, I casually enjoy a good sighting story. That's how I would describe myself. <laughs> that's yeah. I, I, and I think I think that's healthy. I don't. I don't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like you've a whole podcast about it. Jeez, loser. <laughs> but um. Yeah, it, it's 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 healthy a healthy interest in a fascinating topic. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I think is is a uh, is a, is a good thing, and I, I think we we sort of start off with with a question since it's not one of our usual topics, and that question is why should people care about UFO sightings if they should? We're assuming they should. So why should they? What are the reasons to care as as a non UFO devotee? <laughs> what what do you think? I mean, aside from just like a cool, interesting, weird story, which I'm all about enjoying a cool, interesting, weird story, I have always enjoyed sort of like what of the culture of the time is reflected in these sightings. So, you know, are they Cold War fears uh, as, as people are, you know, thinking about exploring outer space, is it fears about what they will find out there? You know, these types of news stories, the same way, you know, today that we see different um, flaps and fears and things like that um, as expressions of fears about Russia invading the Ukraine, you know, or, right, or something like right. that. I think I think that they can be a good mirror into um, into what's what's going on. I think my answer is, of course, very close, uh, very close to what you would say. I, I, I think UFOs reflect those things. I, I think UFOs can sometimes, UFO belief can influence other things. And mm-hmm. I, I think sometimes UFO belief, uh, particularly 
as we get into the, the 60s and 70s and, and onward. I, I think the UFO thing is so tied up with the larger uh, conspiratorial and conspiracy culture mm-hmm. of the United yeah. States. Uh, there, there are there are government links trust be- and distrust and things. Exactly. Especially as we're getting into, I mean, what we're going to be talking about today huge government trust issues with the UFO topic at a time when people were losing trust in the government for all sorts of other reasons. So <laughs> mm-hmm. UFOs are, are part of a, they're one strand in a bow of, you know, mistrust. And uh, in, in some cases, in some cases, paranoia. I, I think UFO sighting stories are fascinating. I think UFO abductions are fascinating. My, my Oh, of, yeah. Can I yeah, share a yeah. story? So yeah, when yeah. I was in high yes. school, I watched um, Peter Jennings had this special about UFO abductions and um, we were an ABC family growing up. So always watched um, Peter Jennings on world news tonight. And uh, so in that they explored sleep paralysis and I was terrified (laughs) as like a 15 year old that I maybe that I don't know how old I was I don't know when it came out something like that I'm sure but I was terrified that I would experience sleep paralysis and think that I had been abducted by aliens oh yeah that's I I think that's a a a reasonable a reasonable fear to have when you watch (laughs) those sorts of of TV shows (laughs) that was Um, the first time I'd like heard of sleep paralysis though right so it was right oh my yeah I mean I I'd never heard of it until it was linked to the abduction stuff. So mm-hmm. I was in, I was, if, if you were in high school, I was in, I think I was in grad school when that came out. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I was like, well, well, what's sleep paralysis? I have no idea. Then I heard it's like, oh, this is terrifying. This, yep. this is, um, I wasn't afraid of getting abducted by aliens. I was afraid of thinking I was abducted by aliens. Right. So <laughs> along those lines, my sister remembers when she was probably about four. So it would have been like 1982 two or so um she remembers seeing gray aliens peeking in the windows of her what? bedroom the thing is gray aliens weren't a thing really in 1982 uh-huh. like that image that pops so that always kind of oh freaked me out. you never now, told me that before I, my gosh a story that i haven't already told I know, you that, it's that's amazing um, right okay <laughs> ufos are important for a lot of reasons for what they reflect for the different strands of other aspects of culture they tie into all of these uh, all of these things and so today or tonight or whenever you're listening to this <laughs> we're going to tell you a ufo story yeah but before we do that um i thought it would be important as as the casual listener of ufo tales if you will um to to sort of lay a framework for a ufo sighting or and start to talk about patterns that we see recurring in ufo sightings as well as giving you some biographies of some people who are you know heavily involved in a lot of these sightings at this time and um define some terms talk about some organizations known by their acronyms (laughs) (laughs) And all of that kind of thing, because it can be a lot. And as somebody who's not super well versed in it, I'm always like, well, crap, which one is this, (laughs) you know? And um, it's like, I recognize this person's name, but I, I, I don't remember where exactly, but I know he's important. And so as Aaron was filling in the outline, I was like, wait a minute, like, let's use this episode as kind of a primer on looking at, examining, listening to, enjoying um, a a UFO sighting story. And this can be something that we kind of keep adding to should we decide to dive into other UFO sightings in the Great Lakes region in the future, if there are other notable ones Aaron wishes to (laughs) bring bring to the list. I I can probably think of like two. But but you know this is something that that can be helpful, and we can always refer back to this first part of this episode in the future when we're like, remember Jay Allen Hynek? Like, go back and listen to his bio at the beginning of this episode. Um, and so that's that's what we're going to do right now. So one of the things that you put in this sort of sort of you know framework for us to understand mm-hmm. these things was is the idea of, of patterns. And um, the way you you phrased it, I sort of kept just your sort of description in here. You said, I don't know if this makes sense, but I think it does. People see things more believable if official people see things, request for investigation. Government says it's nothing. That, that, 
that sort of sums it up really in a lot of ways. So, but while it doesn't fit in every case during this golden age of public interest in UFOs, which is the 1950s and 60s, um, and we're going to actually tell you why that period ends by the end of this uh, this episode. During this golden age, there are some patterns we can discern. There are periods of widespread sightings, usually called flaps that were heavily reported in newspapers, radio, and television. If there are sightings by people in certain occupations, police officers, pilots, people who either know what's supposed to be in the sky or who are considered to be trained observers, uh, those are usually given more weight than sightings like, you know, people like us. So when people have UFO sightings, who do they report these things to? That's always that's always a really good question. It's like, so who do you actually tell <laughs> If you see a UFO um, in an age before social media, right. who do you now, go to? <laughs> now you go to ufosightings.com and fill out a form that goes nowhere, right? Or you post on on Facebook and say, hey, I just saw something weird in the sky in your community group. Did anybody else see that? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then you start to see like, yes, I did. Or then, we then heard a know, weird boom. What did you hear? You know, <laughs> then the really strange people come out and, yeah. and say, what's your address? Because I need to come investigate you. <laughs> Often people would call local law enforcement agencies. They'd call the newspaper. If there was an airport nearby, they might call the airport and say, hey, was there a plane that wasn't a usual plane? Because I noticed a weird thing in the sky. In 1952, the Air Force began collecting and investigating reports in an organized way. Also in the 1950s, various civilian flying saucer organizations started to pop up with their own investigators who would monitor newspapers for sightings, interview witnesses, and try to arrive at some conclusion as to what had been seen. Initially, these organizations were fairly local and were modeled more on sort of science fiction fan clubs than institutions of scientific investigation. And honestly, most of them were made up of kids, teenagers. It's, it's cute. It's actually adorable. It's like Stranger Things. It is. It, but it earlier. really is. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, I think it's interesting, like reaching out to, you know, like the local airport and and things like that, just how much more accessible people were back then i mean now you can't like you can't even call the post office now i'm no. um, sure you could still call like 911 if you were like oh my god there's a giant craft hovering but like i don't <laughs> even know that that would be my thought like i, no. I honestly do not know what i would do who who I, I'd take some pictures, hopefully, unless they mess with my brain and keep me from taking pictures, which is they a would. thing. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, right now, I mean, I think who I would call is probably you call John uh, Tenney. You have his number, I'd, I'd, right? I'd, I'd, call, I'd call John Tenney. I would call John <laughs> Tenney down in Detroit and say, John, come investigate this. Um, I will not pay for your gas. Uh, so, <laughs> so in 1956 frustrated by what they saw as a lack of progress by the Air Force in solving the flying saucer question. A group of Washington, D.C. notables formed the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon, or NICAP. This is an important one, NICAP. NICAP. Remember that. Soon, aviation and UFO writer Donald Kehoe would seize control of the organization, which is a story and a half in itself. <laughs> and NICAP's approach would be typified by two things. First, hyping their serious scientific approach to UFO investigation, shunning anybody who had goofy, fun UFO encounters with guys in jumpsuits, which that's just awesome. But no, that's that's not serious for NICAP. The second thing is loudly proclaiming that the Air Force was actively hiding vital information about UFOs. So they're a serious scientific organization convinced the Air Force is covering things up. Mm -hmm. So were they? It certainly seems that part of the UFO sighting pattern during this time, as Sam pointed out when she sort of introduced this idea to me, is the Air Force basically saying, nothing to see here <laughs> in response to UFO reports. Well, people didn't know it at the time. But in 1953, the CIA convened a committee to look at the question of flying saucers and the Air Force's response to it. It's called the Robertson Panel. And it's too much to get into here in detail, but the panel concluded that the Air Force should work to demystify the saucers and recommended that the Air Force reassure the public of the total lack of danger or strangeness from the objects. And they were to utilize the media, and they mentioned Disney by name, as maybe <laughs> Disney can put some cartoons out there to tell people what you saw was the planet Venus or something like that. So there's absolutely documented efforts on the part of the government to say, hey, we need to just make sure people don't think anything weird 
is going on. So this is the direct link to like coming up with alternate explanations for for what these sightings would be. Right. We are desperate to find any alternate ex <laughs> anything that lets us be able to say it's explained. From weather balloons to swamp gas. Weather balloons, swamp gas, planet Venus. <laughs> yeah. Yep. All right, so now we're going to move into um, a few other definitions that are going to be important to remember. And so there are lots of, as we mentioned, acronyms involved with all this um, and other projects that we're looking into UFO sightings. Um, and for this episode, you need to know what Project Blue Book is. Um, Project Blue Book was established in March of 1952 by the Air Force as a way to systematically investigate UFO sightings. So this is the dispatch, the folks, they go out and look into what people are seeing, what's being reported. Blue Book had two basic goals. The first was to determine whether or not UFOs were a threat to national security seems important. <laughs> they are the Air Force. So right. <laughs> I want them doing that. The second was to scientifically analyze data from UFO sightings. Blue Book was not the first government attempt to explain UFOs. Prior to this, there was Project Grudge and Project Sign, and they were short-lived efforts that were largely hidden from the public. Blue Book, though, was relatively public-facing and lasted much longer, being discontinued in December of 1969. So it lasted from 1952 to 1969. Um, why did it end? We're going to get into that. So I should interject here with our question of who do you call for a UFO sighting? When Blue Book comes onto the scene, basically, if you called the police, if you called the airport, they would usually call the mm -hmm. Air Force. And up until March of 1952, the Air Force would say, we don't look into that. But now there was somebody, well, there were like three guys in Dayton at Wright-Patterson Air Force <laughs> Base whose job it was to sort of get these reports. So it's this link in the chain of getting the information to somebody. So while Project Blue Book was an Air Force project, it made use of civilian scientific consultants, including astronomer and astrophysicist J. Allen Hynek. And he's an important name to remember. Um, he's the one who, like, if I'm hearing a story, it's like, oh, that guy, I've heard yep. of him before. But why? <laughs> what what was it he did again? We're 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 gonna tell you right now. So Heineck received his PhD in the mid mid nineteen thirties. He taught and did research at various observatories and universities, including the Ohio State University and Northwestern. He became associated with the Air Force's efforts to explain UFOs from almost the beginning, being asked to serve as a consultant for Project Sign in the late nineteen forties, as well as for Project Blue Book. He began his UFO investigating career as an avowed skeptic on the matter, but fought against the tendency within the Air Force and the news media to openly ridicule witnesses or mock the subject. And this is something that, you know, I mean, you can all imagine it right now. Like if you think of like Independence Day, like the movie, <laughs> and you know, everybody is um, Randy Quaid is like the quintessential like mocking figure of the I'm, I, I'm not even forming these sentences right. I think you all know what I'm talking about if you've seen Independence Day, right? He is a figure of fun. Yes. For the media. Yes. 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 <laughs> um, over time, though, Hynek's views on UFOs began to change, sometimes bringing him into conflict with the Air Force, which he believed was not devoting enough personnel or resources to Project Blue Book. In the early 1970s, after the closure of Blue Book, Hynek founded the Center for UFO Studies in Chicago, an organization dedicated to taking a scientific approach to investigating the UFO phenomenon. Hynek was one of the most publicly visible UFO officials during the 1960s heyday of UFO sightings and arguably one of the most significant figures in American ufology ever. So, J. Allen Hynek. And we're going to mention this book later on, I think, but I want to make sure you know about it now. There's a great biography of him by Mark O'Connell called The Close Encounters Man, which is just fantastic. And it's not just about UFOs. It's about his whole scientific career and, and life and everything. It's, it's really good. And the Project Blue Book TV series that was on History Channel – if you didn't know, that was fiction. Okay, so that was fiction. Didn't it know was there was one. <laughs> it, it, it didn't last long, but it was intended. Think of it as a historical X Files kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And there was there was J. Allen Hynek was in it, but oh, it was it was interesting. Fun. I thought it was fun. Some people complained that it wasn't accurate. It's like it's fiction. 
It's right. there, it's not a documentary, folks. Right. So, looking back at our UFO sighting pattern idea, was Blue Book part of a UFO cover up? Eh, maybe. In order to accomplish that mission of demystifying UFOs and reassuring the public that they weren't a threat, Blue Book had a policy of heavily publicizing cases where there was a reasonably logical, boring explanation of what witnesses had seen and burying or classifying cases that remained unexplained. And many of those cases that were unexplained remained hidden from view until they were declassified in the last few decades. And now you can read every Project Blue Book report. They covered about 12,000 or so cases they disposed of during um, during the dozen or so years they were around. So, well, actually close to 20 years around. So you can you can read all those reports now. But sometimes when they would explain a case, it didn't go well. <laughs> Their explanation was not necessarily plausible. And that was the case in Michigan in 1966. The sightings in Michigan that would garner so much attention were part of a wave of sightings that began in mid-1965 and would continue throughout the United States through the end of 1967. And it coincides with an upswing in media coverage of UFO sightings and public awareness of UFO sightings. So these things go hand in hand. There's an increase in sightings and there's an increase in news coverage, which maybe we could argue causes more people to feel comfortable talking about sightings they had. Maybe um, as there are more of these reports coming in, people are like, oh, wait, people are going to want to read about these because more people are talking about it. And so which came first, the chicken or the egg? All I know is there there were a remarkable number of UFO paperbacks yeah. published in the mid 1960s, and they all probably made more money than any UFO book that would be written today because <laughs> it was just such a much more popular topic. Sure. Yeah. Ways. No, I mean, I wasn't like disagreeing. I was just saying there's a there's a reverse way that there, you can there's, look at oh, it yeah, too. Yeah, They're feeding each other for sure. Oh, ab- absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So in March of 1966, there were UFO sightings outside of Dexter, Michigan, which is near Ann Arbor, and at Hillsdale College. There would be other sightings throughout southeastern Michigan, but the Dexter and Hillsdale sightings are noteworthy for having multiple simultaneous witnesses. And um, this is always something people are looking for. Was it seen by more than one person? Um, how many other people? And of course, then we look at what kinds of people were, were having these sightings. And um, police officers are often noted in, in these articles. They were often the witnesses. And those witnesses were also able to provide fairly detailed descriptions of what they saw. The sightings received international attention and would end up being one of the most significant UFO-related events ever. So what happened? In a newspaper article in the Dexter Leader on March 17th, um, there was a headline that read that unidentified flying things, which I thought was (laughs) super funny. Yes, UFTs. (laughs) Um, Were spotted on March 14th, 1966 by residents of Washtenaw, Livingston, and Monroe counties. And the newspaper article included sort of a timeline of what happened. At 3.15 a.m., a Dexter police officer named Robert Hunnewill saw four disc-shaped objects flying together in a formation, and later he saw two flying alone. So the claim is is that there were six um, objects in total. These objects appeared to emit a blue-green star-colored light. You know, if you look at a star long enough, you can kind of see <laughs> see the yeah. colors pulsating. Yeah. That's what I imagined. Um and there were a few witnesses who added in the color red as well, but blue-green was was sort of the, the popular color that was seen. About an hour later, so at about um, 4.15 a.m., the Washtenaw County Sheriff's Department requested the Dexter police check out a sighting at Dexter Pinckney Road. And at the same time, a Livingston police officer called in a UFO report as well. So we have... The officer, the Dexter police officer, Robert Hunnewell, seeing something. We have the the folks in Washtenaw County, as well as the Livingston police officer, who are now all being sort of called out as seeing something, as well as other folks. It's it's alluding to in in the article. Um, The Ohio police also received calls um, in the wee hours of this morning, reporting some strange things in the sky. And by 5.30 a.m., the police um, had received 11 calls from the Dexter area 
about these UFO sightings. So that's, you know, a fairly decent number um, for, for one area. And then if you think about how it's spread out into other counties as well, um, who had reported seeing things. And the article did also note that folks at the Selfridge Air Force Base gave no clues as to what the object might be. So so this was this was just the first report. So remember, this happens on March 14th and is reported, reported on March 17th. Then, on the night of March 20th, Frank Manor spotted a UFO as well. After a call is received from local resident Frank Manor, Officer Robert Hunawil is dispatched to his residence to investigate claims of a UFO sighting. Hunawil was sent an article from the Dexter Leader Notes because he had spotted the objects um, in the sky previously. But I love this. On his way out, he picked up his wife to show her what he saw. Like, hey, honey, remember that weird thing I saw? Like, get in the car. We're going to go look at another one. That is, and and that's one of the things about these sightings is that it turns into like this local event, and you sure. will have people just like getting together in groups to look for the flying saucers. But I, just, I think it's funny because it's like official business. But he's like, you have to like. I imagine he's like, you have to believe me. Come with me. I'll show you. <laughs> Um, Hunnewill reported, quote, the objects is having red, white and blue lights, no motor noise, having an appearance of coral rock. And one was either on the ground in the marsh near the manor home or hovering just above it. Um, he did also add that there were some reports of the crafts having antennae, windows, and that it hovered over his car. But all of those reports were incorrect. So clearly he's saying this is what I saw. That is not what I saw, which I feel is always one of those little things that adds credibility. It's not just mm-hmm. like this this fish story that keeps yeah. growing, at least from this source. It's not. He noted that there was another strange object that passed over Dexter. But when the deputies shined their spotlights on it, the object turned off, turn, turn off, turned turn off. off its lights <laughs> and it disappeared. Um, 14 people reported strange sightings to the police um, that night. And Frank Manor and his 19-year-old son were certain that they saw the object at 500 yards. Which isn't close, but isn't super far away. I have no concept of – my spatial skills are absolute crap, so I I couldn't tell you what 500 yards would be like. (laughs) I I, I sort of picture like five football fields sort of stacked. Oh, true. Yeah. Yeah. Not stacked, but lined up Mm -hmm. sort of. Linear. It's just, I'm, it's I'm, not I'm my gesturing forte. linearly. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm really good with spatial dimensions. Oh, well, good for you. It's, it's one of my few <laughs> talents, Sam. Let me have this. Uh, <laughs> one, one thing I want to say is, <laughs> who says I don't have any self confidence or self esteem? <laughs> my I'm spatial good. skills my are spatial great. Spatial skills are great. I can tell how big things might be. Um, going back to this idea that that the the officer said, "Look, this is what I saw. You're seeing these stories that." It was this, this, or that. That's not what it was. If you Google Michigan 1966 UFO sightings, we'll put this photo up on uh, social media, so take a look at it. There's a drawing from one of the police officers based on what witnesses said they saw, and it's very clearly not just a light. It's sort of a spaceshipy looking thing, and you sort of have Hunnewell saying, there's no antenna, there's no motor noise, it's not like sitting on top of my car. So he's being very straightforward that I saw a weird light. So Frank Manor first saw what he thought was a falling star around 7.30 p.m., but when it reached the tree line, it stopped and turned on blue and white lights and hovered over one spot. He said the object was pyramid-shaped and, in addition to the lights, had yellow heat waves radiating off it, which is an interesting detail. His son then approached and called out, and the lights went out, and it was gone. It later reappeared over a nearby uh, a nearby valley. So Mrs. Frank Kramer said she didn't see anything that frightened her, but instead reported seeing three low-flying airplanes. So something in the sky that was a little off, but mm-hmm. she clearly recognized them as, these are airplanes, they're just way too low. So another kind of variation in what people are seeing. The Washtenaw County Civil Defense Director was withholding comment until he saw the objects himself. Sensible. <laughs> he went out to the manor home around 9 p.m., but saw nothing over the course of two hours. Day. Hours. Okay. <laughs> okay. 
I left a word off of that Days, piece of the outline. Nights? Okay. Months. Um, he was there for months, months and never nothing, saw anything Nothing else. happened. I they wondered just, why this guy just suddenly moved in with them. <laughs> I think we're going to leave that in as, as an example of what happens when we record, folks. Sometimes <laughs> so. words just aren't there. Yep. <laughs> so a, a March 22nd newspaper report in the Traverse City Record Eagle noted another sighting downstate. So <laughs> Traverse City is in the north. This is all happening down south. The county civil defense director, uh, William Bud Van Horn, and 87 co-eds, which is a word we don't use anymore. Um, a co-ed, just so you know, uh, refers to a woman who is attending college. So if you're young, in fact, if you're even older than I am, you've never used the word co-ed, except <laughs> in quoting old things. Yes. Um so 87 women who were students at Hillsdale College claimed to have seen an eerie, hovering, flying object settle in a swampy hollow near a college dormitory Monday night. So Bud Van Horn said that he watched the object through binoculars for five hours, which is a while. I well, mean, he's surrounded yeah. by young college girls. I feel like he's just like, I'll that just is hang true. out here I will, and watch this UFO. I will, I will take, I will take one for the team and just stay here <laughs> among these women in their early twenties with my binoculars. <laughs> I, I, this is, this is. I, I'm There's set nothing the creepy at all about this scenario. No, not at all. So the article stated that the Air Force was calling in J. Allen Hynek. It's a little more complicated than that, as we'll see. But that's how it was reported. They're calling, they're calling in J. Allen Hynek like a superhero, mm -hmm. uh, who was then, at that point, the chairman of the Dearborn Observatory at Northwestern University and special consultant to the Air Force's UFO study program. So I just want to say, as somebody who knew, knew knows knew less about this that I was like, wow, they're even talking about the Air Force's UFO study program in this newspaper article because in my mind, it's all secret. And you know what? <laughs> That's the impression we get. Um, if you've if, if you've seen the news lately about UFO stuff, that there's hearings in Congress and that there's an office in the Pentagon and most people haven't because most people don't care, but I UFO mean, people, yo, right? UFO, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't care either. If there's not guys in jumpsuits coming to have a flying saucer, it's not really on my radar. But there, there's, there's this sort of historical sort of black hole in our memory that for 17, 18 years, the Air Force had a very public office that investigated UFO sightings that was mentioned in newspapers. And do you know what I'm going to, I'm going to blame two things from pop culture on this all being so secretive. The first is the X-Files. Yeah. Yeah. And the other is men in black. Yes. Yep. I think those have led me to believe, although they shouldn't lead me to believe anything, but that if, if the government were doing anything, it'd be like so secretive. You'd never know anything. And what's fascinating about this, and this is something we should do over on the Patreon. There was a show called Project UFO. Have you ever heard of Dragnet? Mm -hmm. the, so it's by the same guy who did Dragnet, Jack Webb. And it was like Dragnet, only instead of two cops investigating cases, it was two Air Force officers from Blue Book investigating oh. UFO sightings that were based on Blue Book reports. And it was while Blue Book was going on. And it's it's a it's a neat <laughs> show. There's, there's one where a nun sees an apparition. It, it's Ooh. it's pretty it's pretty cool. But um, but yeah, it was and, and that was on on TV. So then there's <laughs> this this sort of like X files X files ish X filian X filian sort of sort of <laughs> curtain drop down that sort of you know renders everything secret it's it maybe more complicated than that but I, I i like what you said so let's just blame x-files <laughs> and men in black i'm perfectly uh perfectly fine doing that where were we oh bud van horn's hanging out with young women with binoculars. Yes. that's where we were and they've called in <laughs> dr hynek so van yes. horn like frank manor said that the craft had orange and yellow wavering light or lights issuing from it he and the college girls stopped watching the UFO when a storm rolled in, but Van Horn reported that it was still there when he left. Police were sent out, but they couldn't see the object from the road. I don't know why they didn't join into the party. They had to go home to get their wives. Oh, uh, yeah, which maybe would sort of ruin hanging out with the college girls. Yeah. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> when we come back, what did Doctor Hynek find? And how did he go about looking for it? And what were the consequences of all of that? Dun, dun, dun. 
next time. We don't have a next time. No. Well, I mean, we will. will. (laughs) It'll just be quite delayed. Um, We have decided we've been going pretty nonstop since like mid-January. So we are going to take a break, which will take us kind of to the end of June. So next week would be one of our... Well, the next week after, if you listen to this on the day that it comes out, (laughs) the next week is a usual dark week. Then we'd have a new episode, which we're not going to have. Then we're going to have our usual dark week, and we should be coming back then um, ready to record on June 27th. Yes. so Which means you will hear us in July. So I guess, yeah. Yeah, for the for the rest of for the yeah. rest of June, uh, yeah. we're recording this in May. So, but this won't. It is be the thirty first of May, though. So it's this weird it, sort it of counts. moment. Of it's 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 it's, what, it's when we're on, when we're even on, are we in time? We, we're we're in a liminal zone that is the cusp of June. We're on the cusp <laughs> of June. I, I think is the the technical way to say. It. So yeah, so uh, we're we're taking a little break in June. Uh, June is a remarkably busy month for a whole lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. I might be going on vacation, and we're having people visiting. And, and it's just, it's, it's crazy. So, and like Sam and we, said, we've been going. Yeah. We need to sort of sit down and get a new run of topics in order um, because things always work best when we actually have a run of topics that we're going to yes. pull from. Um, we've kind of been winging. No, no, not winging it. Not but winging it, but sort of every planning time a we few record, weeks ahead and yes. that's it. <laughs> what is our next episode after this one? We'll figure it out. So, June, we're gonna be uh, we're gonna be in planning mode. We'll sell some stuff on the Patreon. Yes, um, yes coming out. So um, we'll have a bonus episode and other content as well. So if you are one of our Patreon subscribers, you will be hearing from us um, throughout the month. Um, but as far as regular stuff, we just need to pause and you know take our own little vacation. Yes, yes, we do. So. Did you want to tell them any more about the Patreon? I can, yes. Okay, so yes. for those of you who do not know, <laughs> we have a <laughs> Patreon. Um, and it is a, through, it's Chizo Media, so patreon.com slash Chizo Media. It is a um, Patreon for both Great Lakes Lore and Aaron's other podcast, The Saucer Life. And if we have two different tiers available that provide um, different benefits, ranging from early access to episodes. We post um, wrap-ups after, you know, our regular recordings. There are bonus episodes, field trip stuff, blog posts, a whole slew of different types of, of content that, that you can hopefully enjoy if you want more of us in your lives. And frankly, I don't know why you wouldn't. So no, ab- absolutely not. <laughs> so you can check out our Patreon and see if um, one of our tiers uh, is right for you. And you can follow us on social media at Great Lakes Lore on Twitter and Instagram. And I think it's Great Lakes Lore Podcast on Facebook. So we're in all of those we're in all of those places. Our website is greatlakeslore.com where you can find old episodes, which you can also find in your podcast app. You can go and read the show notes and look at pictures and things in uh, at, at the website and find other information about various things. So you can check us out in all of those places. And um, my birthday is coming up from from the day that we are recording this. So if you listen to the day that this comes, if you listen to this the day it comes out on the Patreon, which is Friday, June 3rd, that is my birthday. And as a birthday present, you should go to iTunes and rate us and leave us a review because that helps in magical algorithmy ranking type things. And that would just be a really nice thing for you to do, I think. Folks, it's the most cost-effective, <laughs> joy-delivering so, so birthday much joy. present you could possibly. We've been give, like stagnated at our number of rates and reviews, and a new one would mean an awful lot to me. And we're we're <laughs> tapped out on relatives to to leave reviews. Yes, so. <laughs> I've been told in no uncertain terms to stop bugging my uncle. Um, <laughs> so. Anything else? No, I think we can get back to the show. All right, so we have these sightings that have happened in the Hillsdale and Dexter area. And while the local officials are waiting for Dr. J. Allen Hynek to arrive, they are, of course, conducting, you know, some of their own investigations. And the local officials were very supportive of 
the witnesses. Uh, Washtenaw County Sheriff Douglas J. Harvey, who had visited the Manor Farm and knew the family, believed their story. Harvey told the newspaper that these people have seen something. And he dismissed the rumors that they were just looking for attention or publicity. It was his deputies who had seen the UFOs as well. So naturally, he trusted his men, <laughs> which one probably should if, yes. if they've hired them. Harvey also told the Ann Arbor News on March 22nd, I know my men and I trust their reports. I don't know what it is, but I'm sure they have seen something aloft. He asked for help investigating the incidents from the federal government, including agencies such as the FAA. He finally sought assistance from his congressional representative, Weston Vivian. According to an article on these sightings on the website of the Bentley Historical Library at the University of Michigan, Vivian treated the request seriously, possibly because of his constituents' concerns about UFOs. Archives of the congressman's papers and those of other representatives at the time have numerous examples of letters from residents asking for information on flying saucers. Many of these predated the 1966 sightings, but the rate of phone calls, telegrams, and letters increased as news reports of sightings increased. So a typical letter was this 1965 message from Gregory Gullius, who is not related to Aaron, he put in here, um, of Garden City, Michigan. And he wrote to his representative, William D. Ford, I have been in research of UFOs since 1958. Although I am only 14, I think that the Air Force is not investigating UFOs thoroughly. I think 75% of UFO sightings are from other planets, most likely from Mars. So I urge <laughs> you to try and ask the Senate to form a committee to investigate UFOs for five years and publish their findings monthly in all major national papers of the country. What an enterprising young lad this is. Yes, and and the ufo scene was it was a young scene back in the 60s the, the, the problem is gregory gullius is probably still that ufo guy if you're out, greg if you are listening we would love to have you on the show seriously um but uh, i just thought this letter was adorable it is adorable i mean he even had a plan like for five yes. years look at all of them publish everything we'll find something right i mean this isn't just tell me what ask the air force to tell us what the flying saucers are I was like this is what i think they are but i think we need a serious long-term study this is <laughs> I mean, 75% are from other planets, most likely from Mars. I, I, I love also, that. if he wrote this letter in 1965 and said he'd been researching since 1958, he was seven then. Yeah. Isn't it cute? <laughs> I mean, I'm just imagining, oh gosh, I'm imagining seven-year-old me, you know, <laughs> being being like this kid because I was absolutely reading books about UFOs when I was, when I was <laughs> a little kid. Mm -hmm. Eventually. Project Blue Book did come to investigate the sightings in Michigan as a result of the publicity surrounding the event, rather than any particular request from an official. Mark mm -hmm. O'Connell, who wrote that biography of Hynek, explained that officials at Blue Book claimed to have received no official report of the case, which would enable them to investigate. They were forced to jump in due to requests from higher levels of leadership. As the head of Blue Book, uh, Major Hector Quintanilla, reportedly said, Quote, it's the Pentagon, doggone it. All three networks are talking of nothing else. The brass is having a fit. So basically, these sightings were in the news nationwide. And the Pentagon's like, don't we have people to look at this stuff? And the people are like, I, I guess we should, I guess we should go. So Heineck headed for Michigan. And from the outset, he was not confident in finding any sort of solution. Writing later, he explained that there was very little hard evidence. Even though there were many witnesses, he had other cases in his files where witnesses had provided, in his words, far better, more coherent, and more articulate accounts than those in Michigan. Mm. In his report on the incident, which we'll provide a link to in the show notes, Hynek lamented the lack of time and resources which he had to investigate the sightings and complained that he was not able to question all the witnesses he wanted, such as Frank Manor's son. He was not he did not have a chance to do that, while at the same time, he ended up talking to other people who had not seen much of anything of interest, in his opinion. So he's stuck talking to people he doesn't want to talk to. He can't get to the witnesses he does want mm -hmm. to talk to. The publicity meant that there were mobs of people hanging out at the Manor's farm at Hillsdale waiting for more sightings. The law enforcement officials who had seen the things all had their own takes and, in Heineck's opinion, were not much help as far as helping organize the investigation, cutting down, on basically doing crowd control when he's at these sites trying to see what's going on. He said it was a circus. He was basically followed by a media circus 
wherever he was going. And Hynek encountered people who would excitedly point out UFOs to him at night. And he said, it was the star Arcturus. There was a photograph that was taken by, I think, one of the deputies. And he says, this is clearly the planet Venus and part of the moon. This is not anything weird. He's under pressure from the residents to validate their sightings, to to be the scientist who comes in and says, Mm -hmm. you're right, sir. That is what you saw. He's under pressure from the Air Force to wrap things up as quickly and neatly as possible. And he's under pressure from the media to provide a quick, digestible, entertaining answer. And he is not happy. He is. Oh, and and he was recovering from a broken jaw at the time. So he's in pain. He has no help. He's here by himself. It's it's a mess. And so after investigating for only three days, Hynek gave a press conference at the Detroit Press Club organized by Selfridge Air Force Base. This was not his idea. He was informed that he would be doing so by his Air Force superiors, whether he was ready to give an answer or not. So they rushed him into this. Of course, Hynek's superior, Blue Book head Hector Quintanilla, claimed that the press conference was Hynek's idea. Hynek, in his report, described it as a circus, completely mismanaged by Selfridge's public relations department. Hynek did his best to provide a balanced, rational explanation of what people might have seen. According to the account of the press conference in the Detroit Free Press on March 26, 1966, it was marsh gas, not visitors from outer space, that startled nearly 100 persons. The report clarified that Hynek was talking only about the Dexter and Hillsdale College sightings rather than the numerous other sightings in the area. The sightings had occurred in low-lying marshy areas. The lights acted, Hynek explained, like Foxfire or Will-o'-the-Wisps. Although Hynek said that this wasn't intended to dismiss the sightings as a whole or UFOs in general, that it was the explanation that fit best. Rather than something he could prove in a court of law, the media seized on the swamp gas or marsh gas label as the silliest possible way to dismiss what people in Michigan and by extension UFO witnesses in general may have seen. So a lot of these people are really sort of taking this this, you know, dismissive explanation and sort of not internalizing it, but but applying it broadly um, as as this explanation, like, ah, don't worry about those UFOs. It's all just swamp gas. <laughs> and I think that one of the things that, ex- that a lot of these sort of natural explanations do is it discredits the the local knowledge that the people in the area have. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so dangerous. Like these people have lived around these marshy areas or whatever for forever. Y- you know what's normal and right. y- you know what something that, is in the sky what that floats down, you know whatever it is like you're, you're going to have some idea of what's happening in the land that you have lived for decades and your parents at this probably have lived for decades and you know on and on and so i think that's you know one of the big reasons why it seems like outsiders come in they try to like explain things away but they're not then taking into consideration the the local knowledge because it's not sort of the the book smarty scientific knowledge that the outsiders are bringing in i think i think that makes sense and if you think of of somebody like bud van horn who was like the civil defense director mm-hmm. for for hillsdale county you would think he would know the difference between swamp gas or marsh gas and something he had to spend five hours Mm -hmm. looking at and monitoring and trying Mm -hmm. to figure out now for his part sort of devil's advocate ish Heineck had an opinion of bud van horn and one aspect of that opinion was that van horn was somebody who had made up his mind that he saw something and nothing would ever persuade him differently so But I think that's like natural, right? I mean, if you see something and it's not just a passing glimpse, like if you're looking at something for five hours, like you're going to you're going to be sure that you saw a thing. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And and this doesn't even even if if we take Hynek's marsh gas thing at face value, it it doesn't explain the other sightings. Right. Right. He didn't he didn't intend it to. So so that's something that that also the the Mm -hmm. news didn't really include it's like ah it's all everything that hundreds of people have seen it's just swamp gas Mm -hmm. no he was saying that these two discrete incidents that took place in swamps were swamp gas so you know not as laugh not maybe not the right answer but not as laughable as it was as it was made to sound Mm -hmm. so the reaction was not great for Hynek. Uh, in the words of his biographer, 
the Michigan witnesses felt like they had been betrayed and humiliated by a snooty academic, and they were furious. Mm-hmm. And we've got some some great uh, some great quotations for you. So the dorm mother at Hillsdale College of the dorm, where all of the women are, you know, uh, students were who saw this. Um, her name was Kelly Hearn, and she said. In the matters of astronomy, UFOs, and celestial calculations, I am a complete novice. Hence, for me to take any issue whatsoever with Dr. Hynek's findings would be presumptuous, inappropriate, and ill-considered on my part. I can say no more than this. If the phenomenon were swamp gas, as Dr. Hynek stated, then it behooves me to spend more time studying swamp gas and less time watching what I took to be a UFO. I love that. It's just so (laughs) delightfully snarky and it, it I, I think and we need to use the word behoove more um, <laughs> that's that's one of those words i i want to bring back <laughs> so bud van horn the civil defense chief said it was my considerate opinion that dr Heineck had his mind made up as to what his findings would be before he ever reached the city of hillsdale i also observed that his main line of questioning was relative only to that which would fit the marsh gas theory so bud van horn had about the same opinion of Heineck yeah. as Heineck had of van horn so two very stubborn men. But also interesting that he notes that he didn't interview everybody, but Heineck also felt like he didn't get to interview everybody. So that's like they're seeing it, but just, you know, he's not Van Horn is not understanding it from what was actually yeah. going on behind the scenes. I think I think a lot of these people expected there to be a massive team of investigators coming out. Sure. And it was just a guy, you know, and, <laughs> right. and so, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Sheriff Harvey said, with all due respect to Dr. Hynek, I'm not ready to accept this weak excuse of gas from marshes. I like that. (laughs) And and Frank Manor said, I'm just a simple fella, but I seen what I seen and nobody's going to tell me different. Mm -hmm. That wasn't no old fox fire or hullabalusion. It was an object. (laughs) Hullabalusion is another word. And I thought that would trip up the spell checker, but it did not. Which means it's a real word. Mm -hmm. These sightings in the spring of 1966 had garnered enough attention to pique the interest of NICAP, unsurprisingly, led by Donald Kehoe, both of whom were mentioned in the beginning of the episode. Remember, NICAP wanted more investigation into and serious attention for UFOs. And an April 3rd, 1966 article in the Detroit Free Press listed the Michigan sightings, as well as a few others, as a sign that more people were noticing and taking these things seriously. So this is a a turning point where the news is saying, look, maybe there is something to all this. Maybe it isn't just people who said they met guys in jumpsuits and a bunch of faked photographs and things that, you know, bumpkins out in wherever are claiming to see. Maybe there's something that we need to look at more seriously. So what is what is the significance of, of what happened here in southeastern Michigan? Members of Congress, particularly Michigan members like Gerald Ford, were flooded with letters demanding more thorough investigation of UFOs in the wake of Hynek's dismissal of the Michigan sightings. In a March 28, 1966 press release, Gerald Ford called on the House Committees on Armed Services and Science and Aeronautics, urging them to investigate the UFO subject. The release said, Ford is not satisfied with the Air Force explanation of the recent sightings in Michigan and describes the swamp gas version given by astrophysicist J. Allen Hynek as flippant. So even Gerald Ford, who is not yet president, of course, is, you know, sort of giving Hynek a hard time about this. What ends up happening are congressional hearings um, in April, May, into the summer of 1966. Hynek testifies, um, Major Keaton Nia testifies, and the result of all this is that at the close of 1966, a new initiative is launched to survey the UFO sightings that had been collected by the Air Force. Not by the Air Force, by civilian scientists. And it's usually called the Condon Committee and was run by the University of Colorado. Its conclusions, a few years later, UFOs were largely identifiable and not interesting enough scientifically to pay much more attention to. They are not a threat. They are not a danger. As a result of this report, the Air Force says, well, who needs Project Blue Book? (laughs) And Project Blue Book ends in 1969. This is until relatively recently, this is the end of the Air Force publicly saying openly, we're interested in UFO reports. Because after this, it was, we have no interest in UFO reports. That was the standard answer. If you were to ask 
anybody from the Air Force about UFOs. We have no interest in UFOs. We had, and they would, they would cite this. Scientists looked at it, and there's really nothing to see here. The Condon Committee is, is a much bigger story than this, of course. But um, for our purposes, why are the Michigan sightings significant? Because it leads pretty directly to the end of Project Blue Book. And I forgot, I wanted to mention this at the beginning, at the very beginning of the episode, um, but this is not meant to be like an exhaustive look at all of these different pieces <laughs> that oh, no, are involved no, no, inside no. of this. Um, and actually, Aaron had put much more into the outline and I kept cutting back things. So if you take <laughs> issue with anything here, don't assume it's because Aaron doesn't know things. It's because... I'm 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 the, the the time warden here. I, I was I was getting a little granular <laughs> with this stuff, and uh, well, I know I was, how, what yeah. I know what it's like when you know a topic so very. If someone said, "Hey, let's do a podcast episode about Thomas Jefferson," I'd be like, "Hot dog, how long do we have?" <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, I just wanted to say that that if anybody, any of our listeners out there, get a little poo pooey with anything potentially glossed over, it is my fault. So we've got some questions to think about as we we sort of summarize what we've seen here, and and you had a really good one that uh, that I thought was was interesting. Yeah. So, um, I mean, just kind of. I think at a surface level, it doesn't really look like this story is a Great Lakes lore topic, right? So so are these UFO sightings, whether they happen here in Michigan, in the Great Lakes region, or anywhere else, are these lore? Are these part of folklore? Yes, no. Why? Why not? Um, I, I have thoughts, um, but I thought... You know, Aaron, since you do both shows, um, what 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 do you think? And then I yeah, will... I I think I think it is. I, I think it's if if it isn't, then neither is something like the Rattle Run murder because both are stories where with verifi- verifiable facts that we pulled out of newspapers <laughs> and put together in a coherent narrative. There's no supernaturalness. There's no even with the Rattle Run murder, there's not a lot of like urban legends surrounding it. Not like Dungeon Swamp, where there's all sorts of stories that spring mm-hmm. up and, and and things like that. So I, I think it's it's lore-ish in the sense that that this that swamp gas, the phrase swamp gas, the swamp gas explanation becomes kind of a, a touchstone and a symbol for an entire perceived attitude of the Air Force toward ufos even when the actual facts of the story get lost we've got this this core of something that helped fuel the assumption that would just be sort of assumed as true that the air force is actively ridiculing dismissing covering up sightings out of a desire to keep some big secret they don't think we are ready for so i I think there are elements of this that have fueled parts of the ufology folklore as it's existed from the 1950s up through the present. So I'm going to get deeper. Um, and in, in agreeing that, that it is, um, it is appropriate for a show on lore and, and legends and things, because I think that these, you know, I think the reason that on the surface they don't look like lore is because they're so modern, right? And you've got modern technology, you've got modern things happening, modern ideas about space and whatever. But I would argue that sightings of things in the sky, lights in the sky, all these things are things that have been happening for a very mm-hmm. long time. But people in the 20th century and 21st century are interpreting them through a lens of 20th and 21st century science and technology. And so things that people in, you know, 300 AD would have been like, it is the God who is, you know, shooting right. bolts of light or whatever, or, or you know, stories of fey folk or, you know, whatever it might be, um, they're just being interpreted now through a modern lens. Of course, you know, Maybe they are extraterrestrials, who knows, whatever. But these types of things, the way that we're telling a UFO story is just a modern way of explaining the unexplainable, which people have been doing for thousands of years. And and that's something and that point of view sort of linking modern ufology with with, you know, 
ages old folklore, one of Hynek's associates, a, a French guy named Jacques Vallée, would write a book called mm-hmm. Passport to Magonia, mm-hmm. which do, not too long after this. It's which, on my list of things to buy for myself for my birthday. <laughs> you know what? I will. You should. You should. It's a, it's a good book to have around. Um, it's a little much to sit down and read because it's story after story after story after story. But yeah, I, I think I think that's an important point to make is is that we are, we are taking things and we are technologizing technologizing mm-hmm. them. You know, we're, we're viewing them through the lens of our own, our own. It's all about the context. historical context, right? Yeah, absolutely, so. absolutely. It's probably one of the oldest things to see something in the sky that you're pretty sure shouldn't be there, and wonder what's going on. So, mm-hmm. I mean, people look to the sky for directions and seasons. I mean, all all kinds of things. And and like I said, we're just we are just now a, a modern people explaining what they're seeing the same way that the ancient Greeks were like, it's the gods messing with us all of the time (laughs) because those Greek gods were jerks, man. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So are UFOs folklorish? Absolutely. I I don't think there's, I don't think there's any question whether it's establishing these connections to ancient folklore or developing the new folklore, Mm -hmm. the new sort of self-contained ufological yeah and i i also wanted to throw that question in for you know potential listeners who are like you know maybe not you know i i know more about sort of traditionally accepted as folklore type things i guess if you will um than this so for for anybody who is more into that like this is just that in the 20th century so yes yes absolutely Mm -hmm. and if you're a ufo person this opens up a whole world of other folklore that you can find little parallels mm-hmm. with. Absolutely. So another question, we sort of talked about this at the beginning. Um, how much are waves of sightings fueled by media coverage of sightings? Um, and, and can we ever know for sure you know, whether where the chicken and the egg thing comes from? Are there just a whole lot of people out there having sightings who are just keeping their mouths shut mm-hmm. until they see 10 other people talking to the media or to the police or to the air force or is it you know is there something there is it we've seen this in other episodes is there a mass hysteria i was gonna say i think that that is a common theme i was waiting for you to get done asking the question but you kept asking it in the same way over and over again yeah i did i did (laughs) um but i think that's a common theme that we see and of course it's common with any of these types of things because you know that that cover stories of the paranormal and stuff um but the the newspaper and the role of the media is is always something you have to be aware of because it it's back then and today influences so much public opinion. It influences the way we do everything. And it was designed to influence the way that we do everything from the very beginning. That's what media yes. was supposed to do. And and so whenever you have a story about a, a sighting or, you know, whether it's Bigfoot or Dogman or the Mad Gasser <laughs> or whatever, um, <laughs> the media is going to play a huge role in in how it's treated, how it's interpreted, how people are going to perhaps buy into or react against what's going on. Um, and it's it. I don't know that you could know the answer, but it's something to be cognizant of. And I, I think at the same time. On the flip side of that, we've got to be careful not to sort of lean too heavily on the media oh, for sure. sort of explanation because I, I think there's there's the danger of dismissing an experiencer's mm-hmm. experience like, well, you may have thought you saw something, but let me tell you about mass hysteria. You know, <laughs> there's there's a danger of of people who who are trying to explain things away of of dismissing those experiencers and and the more time i spend with any of these topics not just ufos but cryptids or ghosts or or whatever um the less i care about explanations i I really don't care about explanations Mm -hmm. i want to know what people have experienced Mm -hmm. i want to know how it's affected them and i want to know how it's had an impact on their life Mm -hmm. and and what they come away from it um with And, and so so that that's sort of where i come at it from the explanation matters less and less to me with each passing year yeah well yeah i think i think for sure as as us looking into it now trying to understand like i don't go into something like this thinking boy i can't wait to get to the bottom of this (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. um, you know, the, the media is just one piece of of the puzzle. But, you know, when you're looking at the time or, or when you're you know thinking about the people who are living through it and how they could have reacted to what they were seeing, I think that. Oh, absolutely. Um, when, but it was absolutely. funny when you said you care less about explanations. It reminds me. So, like, I love watching horror movies, but uh-huh. I would say 90 percent of horror movies screw up the ending because they explain it. And I don't I don't yeah. want the explanation. I don't want to know all about the the getting to the bottom of the ancient curse or like the the grand resolution at the end. That's where it always falls apart for me because I I just want I just want the scary story. That's I, what I want. I want, I want the, the, the scene to close on like some bloody traumatized survivor and I don't know what comes next yes! and I don't know what happened, but I am freaking I don't out. need I don't want the closure. Like the closure right, like right. I, I don't know. Like it, it, it takes the, all the adrenaline and the scary out. Right. It, it sort of and it imposes the sort of traditional, you know, rising action, action, mm-hmm. climax, falling action structure on a story that isn't, isn't served by that right. kind of structure. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I, I hadn't really thought about it in those terms before, but I think that's why I like some, some of the found footage mm. horror films, because unless they try to turn it into like a more traditional narrative, which some of them do. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I like that because it's like, oh, wow, the movie ends when the camera gets smashed. Right. <laughs> right. We, we, we don't know what happens. Or, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Do you have anything else? I do not. Thanks for listening. Swamp Gas and UFOs was written and produced by Aaron Gullius and Samantha Engel. Our music is by Raphael Crux. Great Lakes Lore is a Chizo Media production. Chizo Media, our heart is with the space people. <laughs> Until next time, don't get lost in the lore. <laughs>